This is straight from the YouTube help page. Regardless of your location, we require you to tell us whether or not your videos are made for kids. We're making these changes according to an agreement with the US Federal Trade Commission, FTC, to help you comply with Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPA, and or the applicable laws. Failure to set your content appropriately may result in consequences on YouTube or have legal consequences under COPA and other laws. Wow, that paragraph has sent shivers down the spine of the YouTube community around the world. By now, I'm sure you have seen many videos online. Some are amazing, some are just drama for views, all trying to understand and make heads of sense of what does this mean for our YouTube channels? What does this mean for a YouTube channel that has an audience of under 13 as well as an audience that's over 13? What does this mean for family vlogs? What does this mean for gaming channels? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, we want those answers just as much as you do. So on today's episode of Tube Talk, let's unpack those questions. Just a quick warning before we get started. This is going to be a long episode and anything in this episode should not be constituted as legal advice. Okay, got that out of the way. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. And welcome to another episode of Tube Talk. My name is Liron Segev. I am your host. I am a tech blogger, a YouTuber, and the director of customer success here at vidIQ, where every day we help creators big and small level up their channel, get more subscribers, more views in less time. Of course, this YouTube, COPA, FTC, kids topic has been covered extensively on our blog as well as on our YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe and check those out. And as situations change, we need to get more information. We're going to get the best experts in to help us with that. And that is what we're doing today. We've got someone who understands not only the law, but someone who understands the influencer network, someone who understands the YouTuber mindset, someone who understands this entire ecosystem. That man is Jonathan Katz, who's an entertainment attorney representing influencers for the past three years. He's the co-founder of Clamour Summit, an amazing event for creators and brands to network, learn from each other. Jonathan is our man. Jonathan, welcome to Tube Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Right, Jonathan, we're about to embark on a discussion to do with the FTC and COPA and YouTube. We're just having a discussion around this very sensitive topic. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of attorneys are nervous to speak casually about this topic, you know, for fear that it might be interpreted as legal advice. There's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of, you know, uh, subtlety. And so I, I'm happy to share what knowledge I have, but in the context that none of this is legal advice, nobody listening to this is necessarily like my clients. And so everybody's situation is personal and you really should consult an attorney, you know, rather than rely on what some guys said on a podcast. And with that legalese out of the way, let's jump into it. So Jonathan, you must be a pretty busy man at the moment with um, trying to unpack the mysteries of COPA and the FTC. What, what's going on? Sure. Uh, so the first thing I would do is recommend that they check out an article that I published in TubeFilter, sort of raising the alarm about this uh, um, 
you know, a number of weeks ago, um, before people were really talking about it, um, another attorney who happens to be a YouTube creator named Jeremy uh, Johnson and I, you know, we've been sort of mulling this over and, and being really concerned about it for a while. And so he published a video about it I on YouTube. I published an article about it and started making calls and contacting all of the creators that we knew. And the, the thing that we were concerned about, the thing that we were anxious about is that after the news about the settlement with YouTube came out, we realized that there wasn't a ton of information spreading about how the settlement was going to impact the YouTube platform. And the one thing that we knew and that was clear from the settlement is that creators were going to be bearing the responsibility of being COPA compliant or not COPA compliant um, uh, going forward. That YouTube was no longer taking the responsibility for, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, complying with COPA on a channel that was quote unquote directed at kids and that it was going to come down to the creators having to self-designate. And that got scary really quickly because we realized that by self-designating, YouTube is going to have to change what your opportunities and abilities to interact with the platform are based on if you designate one or the one way or the other. And we started contacting YouTube and started talking to the FTC directly about, you know, what is the picture of what, you know, what comes next? And we right. found that information was not forthcoming by either side. There was a lot of ambiguity. There was a lot of vagueness, a lot of uncertainty on how creators could self-designate to avoid violations of the law. Is that strange when it's something that that's large of a magnitude and has such an impact on so many people for them to be that vague? Is that unusual? So that's an interesting question. How unusual is it? I would say that one of the things that's really novel about the FTC and, and I suppose it's, there, there are a number of regulatory agencies that experience this, which is, they create a piece of regulation and, and then they start to enforce it. And when enforcement actions are performed by a regulatory agency like the FTC, the, the shape of the law and like the, the clarity of the law co often comes out in legal cases, right? Mm -hmm. A judge writes an opinion at the end of a trial stating, you know, this interpretation is correct. This interpretation of the law is incorrect. What's particularly unusual and difficult about COPA is that there has been very little um, you know, judicial opinion on the subject that lawyers can use as references right. to interpret you know, their child-directed 10-factor test. And so it's all incredibly vague because the FTC wants to have the room to take in as much as have as much flexibility to take enforcement actions as they want. And there isn't a judge who has had a case brought in front of him who, who can, you know, check that vagueness by forcing them or obliging them to create much more clearly defined criteria. And the reason that 
there haven't been court cases like that is because it seems like everybody settles with the FTC. And so if there's uh -huh. a settlement, there's, it never gets in front of a judge and therefore no opinions are written and therefore we don't have insight as to how the law works. Yeah, because they said in their 20-year history, they've had just over 30 cases have actually resulted directly with fines from COPA and the FTC. Exactly. And so, you know, there's, there's just, so six years ago, they amended this law in 2013, you know, making huge changes to it. And it has taken until now for these changes to even apply to YouTube content creators. And so nobody's really poked or explored mm -hmm. how this, the, the, uh, how the definitions of kid directed, not kid directed, mixed audience, how any of this stuff is applied. It's not like we have a big, you know, um, case history right. where we can look and see, well, it applied here in this case and not here in that case, if that all makes sense. <laughs> yes, it, it does. But you did hit one word, which was mixed audiences. And I think we just need to understand that a little bit because, you know, content on YouTube is made up of a variety of every niche, every industry, every vertical that you can think of. And a lot of them have, especially things like K-pop channels and WWE channels, gaming channels, they have an audience that's definitely under 13, but they have an adult audience as well. So what is this mixed audience that we keep hearing about? Because for YouTube, it's only giving us two choices. Are you for kids or, are you, or is this video not for kids? And God knows that a lot of creators have been making videos talking about this subject. And, you know, it's, it's been interesting watching all of the speculation that's out there. Um, so, you know, COPA has um, a series of factors that it uses to determine whether you are kid directed or not. And, you know, the, each of those factors is a certain, it constitutes a certain amount of risk. And as YouTube will tell you over and over again, you need a lawyer yes. to review that criteria, review your content, um, uh, and then, you know, give you, provide you essentially with a risk assessment, what elements of your channel, what elements of your audience, put you at risk for a COPA violation, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've basically spent the last three months doing is, is performing these COPA channel review assessments. Um, and so there's, and so frequently my clients have come back to me after I provide them with this risk assessment, especially in the past week, and they say, wait a second, wait a second, you've mm -hmm. been telling me whether I'm, kid directed or not kid directed, but what's all this I hear about a mixed audience? Right. And so the mixed audience exception is in designed for people who have a, an audience that is not primarily kid directed, but they are aware that there is a, there is a, because there's the reality of what was your intent in producing your content and also the, incidental audience that you attract to your content and then there's well general audience content that appeals to a broad range of people including kids and so 
if you got to remember the core goal of COPA, the core goal of it is that they want that when a kid is online and they're interacting with a piece of content, that their personal information isn't getting sucked up into some advertising right. network or, you know, some, some website. And the, they offer essentially three ways to do that, or two ways to do that, I should really say. One is that you have a fully COPA compliant ecosystem that anytime a kid is interacting with it, no data is being collected at all. And then they have potentially a mixed audience system which could be created, which basically is just constantly checking in with the user um, to make sure that only people over the age of 13 are consuming the content. And there's all kinds of restrictions and regulations around that. And to say YouTube should just give us the mixed audience, you know, option. Well, I'm sure that there are a lot of technical um, mm -hmm. requirements that they would have to meet in order to provide that. I don't know what they are. I am not an engineer. Um, and, and I don't know the technical elements that would be required to like, for example, verify that a yes. parent is selecting the age option and not a child who is just like saying they're 21 years old, right? Like there's exactly. plenty of that. Um, and so I don't know what the burden would be for YouTube to implement a mixed audience exception that would allow creators to monetize the part of their audience that is over 13 and not monetize the part of their audience that is under 13. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of it is, is the fear that we kind of relying on YouTube systems and their learning algorithm, which admittedly is getting ridiculously good over the years, but we, but they're still flagging things incorrectly right now before even COPA and the FTC and all this even bubbled up. You're demonetizing videos that shouldn't have been taking people off the platform that shouldn't have been. And then on the, on the, on the um, flip side, doing absolutely the right thing by identifying content that should not exist on YouTube. Do you think that COPA and the FTC have the ability to really monitor 100 million video creators, 500 hours of content uploaded every minute, or is it going to boil down to YouTube offering some sort of system access and they will flag content? So I think this is as good a time as ever to remind everybody that nothing I'm saying should constitute legal advice. Um, right. However, we can all do a fair amount of speculation and look at the resources that each body has available to it in order to, you know, assess what the future on the platform will look like. Um, so YouTube's AI, um, for whatever problems it has had, especially around like demonetization, there are certain things it is really, really good at. Um, and I would say the number one thing is it is incredible at detecting pornography. It is unbelievably good. YouTube's AI technology for spotting and removing porn off the platform is fantastic. I've never run into porn on the platform. And you think about the huge volume mm -hmm. of people who mm -hmm. are using it and the huge number of trolls that are on the platform who I'm sure think it's hilarious to slip porn into the middle of a video that they've re-uploaded, and yet I never see it. And I would have to assume that that is in large part thanks to 
YouTube's very sophisticated AI that is able to detect that kind of thing the moment that it's uploaded. And if we know that about YouTube, if we know that they have that level of competency, then I have to believe that there's a lot of content that their AI can spot and say, this content is high risk for being targeted at kids. Um, and it will, be, it will have lots of false positives. It will also have mm -hmm. lots of false negatives. But the, but the capacity for YouTube to find kids' content being uploaded to the platform and not being designated correctly is, I'm confident, very impressive. And while I certainly see a lot of false positives and false negatives in my clients' channels right now, I am also confident that over time, this system will improve and improve and improve and get to be very sophisticated because identifying kids' content is a lot easier than identifying, or what could be kids' content, than identifying what might be brand safe. Because the definition of brand safe or like, you know, friendly mm -hmm. for advertisers is just so ambiguous and confusing. Whereas, you know, a kid can spot kids' content <laughs> yes. when they're watching it. And so, you know, presumably this AI can do a fairly good job too. Now, you compare that resource that YouTube has against the resources that the FTC has. The, res the FTC doesn't have a ton of resources to put towards this. And so, mm -hmm. and it w in their settlement agreement with YouTube, it was not a requirement that they have an automated system that serves as an enforcement arm for the FTC. Right. It's voluntarily chosen to do that, and what they do with that ultimately is up to them. However, I imagine that given that they just you know, paid the FTC $170 million, they're very motivated right now mm -hmm. to cooperate with the FTC and be a useful source of... Um, you know, information gathering for the FTC and uh, provide information that the FTC is looking for in order to pursue, pursue actions against content creators who are abusing the self-designated option on the platform. Why didn't YouTube simply say to the rest of the world, say, look, our terms are you've got to be 13 and over to use our system. Why are you making this our problem? People know that they've accepted the terms and conditions. Um, that's it. It's, it's end of story. Why are you making us jump through all these hoops when our audience, like you used pornography earlier as an example, like the porn sites. You go to the sites and it says, are you over 18? Are you over 21? You click the yes button and that's it. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a very good question. And I think it's one that is, you know, particularly difficult for everybody to um, sort of, you know, navigate because on some fundamental level, I think that there is a principle that, you know, companies should be able to trust their users and in the case of kids, the parents of their users to monitor what their kids are doing online and make sure that they're only visiting websites that mm -hmm. are age appropriate. And that if they, if they are visiting a site that isn't COPA compliant and they know that, and they know that the site says it's only intended for people over the age of 13 plus, that they are accepting the responsibility as parents to 
whatever data collection that happens incidentally on that site, and by the way, that data collection is typically of the, the, the account holder rather than just the person who happens to be past the, the device, you know, to consume for a moment. So it's not like, you know, people are, that these websites are collecting social security numbers from children. You know, personal information is like very ambiguous yes. sort of term. Um, you know, the, 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 I, I think there's a lot of parents out there that accept the fact that YouTube is, you know, tracking the, the, the watch history of whoever is using the account at that particular time. I don't think that's even secret information, given that mm -hmm. you, know, you can go back and look at your own watch history. <laughs> yes. And so, so those parents are like, you know what? It's okay for YouTube to do what YouTube is going to do. Now, the FTC has not taken that that approach. They have not laid the responsibility at the feet of parents. Um, and, you know, in saying that, okay, you know, parents, you, you are, you, you've clicked through, you know, to, you know, that, that the site is 13 plus and you've passed the iPad to your kids. Therefore you are consenting to this information being collected by YouTube. And therefore YouTube has done nothing wrong. And, I think there's a bit of a, a overreach by the FTC, this is my personal opinion here, by saying that parents can't choose to allow their kids to watch YouTube despite the information that's being collected. Um, and I, I think that a big part of that is that the law doesn't make it convenient or easy for parents to provide that consent. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's where clearly COPA needs to be updated and it needs to, and, and the degree to which parents actually care about you know, persistent identifiers and cookies on their machine being used to provide their kids with the entertainment that they want, that, that all of my clients produce for them. How much do parents really care about that? How much, how sensitive are they to various, um, you know, uh, 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 kinds of data collection that are used for the purpose of making a better user experience on the platform? It seems to me that me as a parent, and I'm okay for my child to watch this this movie at, on the big screen. I am making that as a parent. That's my responsibility. I see why is that different when it comes to a YouTube platform where I'm signing in with my account and I understand. Exactly, and I think that what's unfortunate about the FTC. Um, you know, they're taking six years for these, the effect of this change that was made to COPA um, only felt like in this moment is that right. in those six years, a healthy and wonderful and diverse content creator ecosystem of all these creators that I know and love who produce amazing mm -hmm. and valuable content for their very diverse audiences, they're all in peril, right? They're right. not, they're, their platforms are going to be taken away from them because they will be demonetized. And, you know, I mean, I represent, you know, 
all kinds of you know diverse uh, minority creators, uh, mixed race families, families with adopted children, families who you know create content in all varieties of different languages for all different kinds of audiences, for audiences who have disabilities, you know, and it's all for kids. And that content only exists because the of the democratization of um, content creators being able to build um, uh, audiences on YouTube and monetize them through personalized ads. And what's unfortunate is when you remove the personalized ads, all of those content creators suddenly lose their ability to produce this content. And then all you have left are billion dollar corporations who are going to continue to flood the internet with their mainstream, you know, like uh, middle of the road, mm -hmm. you know, Los Angeles and New York, you know, content. And instead of the diverse array of content that, you know, clients enjoy, like so for clients, audiences enjoy. A perfect example of this is content is faith-based content. And regardless of what faith you are a part of, and even if you're not part of any particular faith, you'll discover that on mainstream television, you don't see much conversation about faith or much content being mm -hmm. produced about um, families of faith. And that's because of various economic and cultural decisions being made in those businesses. Right. But you know, there are so many people of faith all around the world who would love to watch content that reflects their mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. and, and if we allow these massive corporations to be the gatekeepers of what kind of content gets to be displayed, and, and they say, no, we're not going to have any queer families, or we're not going to have mixed race families, or we're not going to have families with adopted kids in our content, then they get to decide that for everyone else what content is available. And what YouTube has done to its credit is allowed all kinds of families to create right. content about themselves and about their experiences so that those underserved audiences can see the content that is meaningful to them. And yeah. in taking their actions, you know, the FTC is is annihilating all of those communities uh, in one fell swoop, in large part because I fundamentally believe they don't understand the business that they are regulating. And is this what, what you guys, the, the people who have access to both the legal and the YouTube community, is that what you're fighting for? Making them more understand? Absolutely. So, you know, if you go back and you read the article that I published in TubeFilter um, about the coming copocalypse, um, the, you know, we, we, we end the article with very clear calls to action. We say, number one, you know, we said to everybody, go comment on the FTC, let them know that you love family and kids content on YouTube, that you love, you know, like content that is child attractive on YouTube, whether it's Minecraft or, you know, slime videos or, or, you know, any sort of like toy collectibles, etc. Um, because all of that content is at risk and that the FTC needs to understand that whether you are a family who enjoys sharing that content with your kids and want it to be able to continue, or whether you are an 18-year-old an who right. doesn't want the, the borderline content that you enjoy to be you know, destroyed as a, uh, 
you know, um, as an accident of, um, you know, of, of like as a casualty of yes. this regulation. And so in the, so the FTC comments really effective and we're asking for them to clarify their rules and to, um, you know, offer creators a, a moratorium or an opportunity to adapt their audiences in order to, or adapt their content right. in order to uh, survive in whatever the new ecosystem is going to be. We'll have links to those, all those in the show notes as well. So if anyone is here, it hasn't taken action and every single person should, a collective voice is what we need here. We need lots of people from diverse walks of life around the world really jumping in on this because it does affect absolutely everyone and things going forward. And we're talking about YouTube specific, but I'm assuming there's going to be ramifications of things off YouTube, maybe um, Instagram, maybe TikTok, maybe LinkedIn. There's going to be other Twitch specifically. They might, it's going to have ramifications. We have to speak up and educate almost the lawmakers of how things are done today. And things will constantly change, but the law doesn't keep up to the way that we are kind of changing. Okay, a quick, quick fire round, fact or fiction. Because I don't live in the US and all of this is US done, therefore none of this affects me. Fact or fiction? So again, you know, I, 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 none of this constitutes legal advice. You know, YouTube is gover is based in the U.S. and it is governed by, you know, under U.S. law. And YouTube is going to be taking actions um, to protect its platform from further, you know, violations or further regulations. And so, even if you're not based in the U.S you are held to YouTube standards. So I think if you are based outside of the U.S. and you run a nursery rhyme channel, um, you may, the FTC might have a hard time prosecuting you, um, but ultimately YouTube will not yeah. allow you to put YouTube at risk for mm -hmm. violating COBA. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a blurry question, but, like jurisdiction is a thing, but that doesn't mean that, you know, this doesn't apply to you at all. Okay. So definitely keep abreast of the situation, a ramification. It might not be the FTC themselves, but you, there will be a ramification right yeah. now. We've been seeing this a lot. If I add a disclaimer to my video description that this is not for kids under 13, surely that simply protects me from COPA. Uh, so, I mean, there's a big logic gap in that one. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're making, if you're making nursery rhyme videos and the kids can't read, how could they read <laughs> your disclaimer? Um, I, you know, ultimately, you know, YouTube has been very clear that there is only that, that their compliance is limited to you notifying them that you need to comply because you're creating kid-directed content. Um, I saw, what's his name, Stuckman uh, posted a, uh, you know, a, a disclaimer on his Frozen 2 review video. And I mean, that's kind of comical because, you know, a, a film review is not really, you know, wouldn't right. really be kid-directed. I think that's a pretty low risk of, 
uh, in terms of a, an assessment, uh, in terms of, you know, what, but, and I think he, he meant it tongue in cheek anyway. Yeah, of course, yeah. But I don't think that sort of a disclaimer would weigh in in any way as to whether or not you were kid directed and therefore whether or not you were appropriately self designating on the platform. Fair, 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 fair enough. The, the only thing that you can really do is get a risk assessment from an attorney and then make informed choices about how you label your content after you have a full risk assessment. Okay, so I just wanted to touch to touch on that very quickly. Since a lot of the content creators are maybe not in a position to go out and seek legal advice, and small channels don't have the money to do it, do you think maybe YouTube is being a bit tone deaf by saying, look, seek your own advice, seek your own advice, seek your own advice? Uh, tone deaf? YouTube? <laughs> never, never. They, their PR is always, you know, nuanced and sensitive and thoughtful in every way, shape, or form. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's hard because a lot of content creators... It, you know, while this law has existed for six years, you could also think of it as if it was passed today, right? Like, right, right, right. As, if, as, if a, as if Congress just passed a new law, and, you know, and that law is creating a regulatory burden on content creators that didn't exist before. And if you think of it from that context, YouTube doesn't have a lot of options in, in terms of informing its audience as, as to what, you know, how, what kind of risk that their content is at. And one of the things that's really tricky about it, and this is, you know, I, sometimes I empathize with YouTube in this and sometimes I'm mm. infuriated with them. And I think one of the things that I keep getting stuck on is I don't expect that YouTube could provide a meaningful assessment without creating more liability for themselves. And the entire reason they've set up these systems is to, to eliminate the responsibility that could imperil the platform. It is tone deaf, but it speaks to the narrow, the poverty of imagination that YouTube is exercising in responding to this settlement, right? That there is, this is a solution that seems practical at scale for them without, without, be, without avoiding massive, you know, problems for a significant portion of the consumer, of the creator base. It, it just feels very, almost passing the buck situation. And, you know, 42,530, yeah, it's the magic number everybody seems to be focused on. Are we really going to see that as soon as I, somebody uploads the wrong video, expect a, a letter in the mail saying, this is your fine? So I do not believe that the FTC will rush to start issuing fines, especially given the incredible amount of pushback um, in the FTC comments that we've been, been, you know, encouraging creators to raise their voices, that they've received, you know, communicating that that is not the will of the people for 
um, the FTC to start issuing gigantic fines at bankrupt creators. And they've made statements, you know, uh, unofficial statements saying, hey, we're not here to bankrupt creators. Although, unfortunately, Commissioner uh, Wilson did make his, we're going to shoot them like fish in a barrel, you know, yes. sort of comment, which I think was incredibly destructive. And personally, I would like him to apologize to the creator community for that, uh, especially if now they're saying that that is not what they intend. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think the creators are immune to fines. And I've seen some people making comments saying, oh, you know, the FTC isn't going after individual creators. Because I think one of the things that people forget is that the FTC's commissioners can change as with one administration to another. You know, we have a revolving door in this country. Uh, you know, potentially every four years, we have a new, you know, president of the U.S. And, and that new person could be and and the turnover of who make up the commission could change at every time at any time and the and choice of what they choose to enforce and what they don't choose to enforce could be very ambiguous you know right. and, and it could change and so to suggest that you know given the huge number of u.s families that consume youtube on a regular basis um you know I think that there's, it's very reasonable to believe that the content creators um, could grow to be sufficiently famous or could be making content that is sufficiently egregious that either, that the FTC decides to take action. Um, but it, it's, you know, mm. it's all at the mercy of public opinion and, 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 and political will, which is why it's so important for the audiences and the creators yes. to communicate to the FTC, to communicate to their Congress people, to communicate to their senators that this is a, that this is a massive overreach by the FTC and that it is damaging uh, uh, an entertainment ecosystem that's very delicate and that we value and want to preserve. And, you know, and they need to take that into account when they think about how they're going to enforce in the future. I'm sorry, that's not much of a quick fire answer, but uh, <laughs> I hope it covered our bases. Jonathan, if you could have a message out there to the content creator community, something that everybody will see, be it a tweet, an Instagram post, a billboard in Times Square, what would that message be? It would be two things. It would be to communicate to the FTC, whether through a comment on their feedback page, which we'll have linked in the comments um, or in the description, and, or what by signing uh, Jeremy Johnson's change.org petition, make your voice heard. Uh, that would be number one. And number two would be get a, you know, COPA compliance channel review or channel assessment. And, you know, make sure it's from an attorney who is, you know, really well informed about the YouTube ecosystem and about mm -hmm. COPA, has read the settlement, the commissioner's statements, the case history about all of this. It is, I think, really important, and I'll tell you why. I think the reason that it's really important to do 
is because over the past six years, as kids' content became more and more popular on YouTube and more and more kids were watching YouTube, what I what has happened over time is that creators have acquired kid audiences without even being aware of it. They don't see that like, you know, five or 10 year olds mm -hmm. are watching their content, but they notice that like when their thumbnails include more bright colors, they get more click through. When they notice that, you know, they, they use simpler language or when they speak in a higher pitched voice or when they have like more extreme reactions to things and all kinds of behaviors that make their videos perform better. But maybe the reason they're performing better is because they're attracting uh -huh. more kids to them and therefore more kids are engaging and watching for long periods of time and therefore their videos are performing better. And I think that this is where, this is a real blind spot for a lot of creators, particularly in the gaming community, who think to themselves, I'm playing Fortnite, it's a teen game, so I'm gonna have a teen audience, without realizing that like such a massive part of that user base is like eight years old. And so all of a sudden, their videos are performing better and better and better as the eight-year-old audience is growing right. and finding their content. And so we don't know exactly what is going to happen in January, but if you're labeling your content not for kids and all of a sudden you're losing all of that audience, you may not lose monetization, but you might discover that your audience disappeared over time. Right. And that's why I think having these assessments by like people who are super familiar with this ecosystem and how the algorithm functions is so important because you okay. want to know now rather than be surprised later on how things are going to shake out algorithmically in right. the new year. Uh, and to that point, if I mark my video as not for kids and then I find that I lose my audience because it was kids, have I got a way to then quickly go, oopsie, remarket it for kids and therefore try to get some of that audience back? Or is it once it's done, it's done? So there's a ton of mystery and I, I know that everybody wants to speculate about this stuff as to how the algorithm is, algorithm is, is going to function in the new year. You know, my understanding is that you do have the option to turn on and off whether or not your content is kid-directed. and uh, you can make those changes. And if we assume that users who are watching made for kids content will only have made for kids content recommended to them, like the experience in the YouTube kids app is, then if you have a large kids audience and you would rather keep the audience and lose the monetization, Come the new year, if your content is marked not made for kids and you flip it over to being made for kids, you may discover that the views start returning to you because mm -hmm. like through rate and watch time with the audience that is now seeing your content will pass through. I think one of the questions that's really interesting is once this new ecosystem is established, how is borderline content that is also marked as made for kids going to perform. So if I have a channel that is made for kids, but is about martial arts, or if I have a, mm. a, you know, a video that's marked as made for kids, but it's about 
you know, girls gymnastics, which has, you know, a lot of that content people have said has gotten mm -hmm. pressed, you know, this year. Maybe if I leave it not marked as not, <laughs> maybe if I mark it as made for kids, that will actually do more to suppress the viewership than if I, than if I had let it, left it as not made for kids. So there's so much yeah. subtlety and nuance in all of this that, and, and honestly, I'm just an attorney who's, I think, very familiar with the ecosystem, but the algorithm is still a black box. So, you know, nobody really knows, <laughs> knows that, right? <laughs> but I, I think that there are going to be risks for content creators. You know, I, another question I've gotten a lot, and I think you, know, you may as well, what about if I do a lot of brand integration? So what if I'm a Minecraft creator who, and I believe I have a mostly kid audience and I've been doing a ton of brand integrations. Well, in, in the YouTube kids app, uh, kids content with brand integrations does not appear. Like it right. doesn't, you can't find kids videos in the YouTube kids app that have brand integrations on them. Well, in this new, made for kids ecosystem on YouTube main, what's going to happen to my brand integrations on content that's made for kids? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And nobody does. And yeah. I think we're going to have to wait and test in January. And I'm happy to come back in, in, you know, February after we've got a few weeks under our belt and talk about that then. First of all, thank you. Cause we definitely going to take you up on that. Cause I think this is going to be a very moving target and we're going to be learning on the fly as things develop. But for now, you've mentioned about a channel audit that you've done some for your clients. Is this a service that perhaps um, some of us can take advantage of if we want to get hold of you to get more information? How do we do that? Sure thing. You can absolutely contact me uh, at uh, jscats.com or at uh, marsonrothman.com. Um, you know, just reach out that you'd like to speak to Jonathan Katz um, about a channel audit. There are links in the description of this podcast for more information. Fantastic. That is what we're looking for. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time and for sharing all this amazing, amazing expertise with us. We really, really do appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Happy to talk anytime. And for the rest of you listening, please hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast application and share this episode with every content creator you know, because this does affect us all. All the links will be in the show notes. Make sure you sign petitions. Let's pull together to make 2020 an awesome year. Thanks for hanging out on another episode of Tube Talk. We'll catch you at the next one.